Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 41, originally recorded live February 26, 2012. This is part two of a two-part episode on the frequently asked questions of humanistic Judaism. Okay, so now let's talk about the ethics questions, uh, because these get particularly challenging. If there's no reward and punishment in the afterlife, then won't people feel free to do anything? Why should I be good if I won't be rewarded or punished? If rules are not absolute, who decides the exceptions? Is enlightened self-interest a good foundation for ethics? What difference does it make what you believe when it's action that counts? I don't understand why these are challenging at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't! I, I, I don't. It's so humanistic. <laughs> but this is the argument that people make against, you know, non-believers or yeah, secularists right. or whatever. They're like, how can, you know, it's how can you be good without God if there's no ultimate art? That's the argument people make. But, but Because um, self-interest will not yield good behavior. But a counter-argument to that is... If God forgives all, and all you have to do is say I'm sorry, then yeah. where's the Catholics in that box? What a great out! Yeah. <laughs> okay, and just okay, okay. Jerry Falwell. So now here's another um, uh, philosophy of argumentation uh, question. That is. Are you in a better position, uh, you can sort of ask this a bit around there, are you in a better position by attacking the other side or by promoting your own perspective, right? I mean, Mitt Romney has been experimenting lately with attacking everybody else, and he's found that his own favorabilities have gone down too. So so the response to someone saying, you, you know, you can't be good uh, without a god, to point out their, the problems that they have in the religious hypocrites and people who claim to be religious and sleep around or, uh, or commit crimes, uh, fraud, and religious-based violence, and all these other things. Okay, fine. Those are all true, too. Right? That's like argument line three. But argument line one has to be a positive affirmation of how you are good. Um, actually, I think it was Richard Dawkins was on a, in a debate sometime, and he said, do you really think that I'm going to pick up a spear and stab you right now? <laughs> and, that, and in fact, your claim that the only thing that's stopping you from stabbing and robbing me right now is your belief in God gets me nervous. Moment of doubt. Right. Uh, I mean, it's, it's obviously not that that's keeping us ethical on either side. You, uh, you can point to metrics like the most secular societies have lower crime rates. Look at the Netherlands, look at uh, the Scandinavian countries, attendance in church, belief in God. All those numbers are the inverse of what they are in this country, and their crime rates are much, much less. So it's not automatic. And are there people who don't believe in commit crimes? Of course. Are there people who believe in commit crimes? Sure. But what makes us ethical is a complex of social expectations, that's part of it, personal feelings of what feels right and what feels wrong, and that's part of it too, how we're acculturated by our family and our communities and our religious institutions to believe what's right and what's wrong, um, and how we react to what we see. Uh, what they've done now in philosophy is they've made the philosophers get out of their armchairs and go out into the world and do experiments and surveys to find out what people really believe. And they've done ethical surveys where they give people a scenario like the classical, you're on a train with no brakes and there's a switch track and if you go one way there's going to be an innocent baby that you're going to kill. If you go another way there are five criminals who just escaped from jail. Which way do you flip the switch on the track? And some people say, well, 
five is more than one and they didn't commit a capital crime. The others say, well, it's an innocent baby. I'll, I'll whack the criminals who are unrepentant because they escaped anyways. You can get debates either way. But what they do is they ask these questions in a variety of different cultural settings, Japanese, African, European, American, South American, and so on. And what they found is there are four or five ethical principles that are common among all cultures. But it's the weighting of those that's different. So in all cultures, there's a value put on loyalty and support of your family. And there's a value put on treating others as you would like to be treated. But you can understand in some cultures, the family value is more important than to treat others like you'd like to be treated. So if you have a job that you can give to someone, why would you give it to a stranger when you can give it to your cousin? Whereas if you put the other value on top, you say, why would I give it to my idiot of a cousin? And it's not fair. It's called nepotism, and it creates a corrupt society and all sorts of other problems. But you can see how those are both values. They're just weighted differently. Um, and that's what, that's what ethics is about. So the reward and punishment thing, I mean, frankly, if someone's standing over you with a hammer saying, go ahead, I dare you to pick up that uh, and steal that Danish. Well, there's, there's nothing ethical about choosing not to pick up the Danish. Um, but it's when you have to make tough choices without someone telling you exactly what to do, without an immediate consequence to it, that you have to think. And ethics is about thinking and making hard choices, not the easy choices. So are, so are you saying that with religion, there's no need for ethics? Well, that's the challenge, you see. Now, what they would say is, well, the, the divine reward and punishment is he's going to get you, but you don't know when. So it's not like immediate someone, you know, the police standing in front of the bakery stopping you. Right. Um, but uh, at the same time, the fear is that, well, all right, maybe you intellectuals can handle it. But the ordinary people out there need something very simple where he knows if you've been sleeping and he knows if you're awake, right? That That's the, that's the vision that they need. Otherwise, society's going to hell. And that's, uh, I mean, that's their argument. I don't see that evidence when you look at societies that have not had that as a core belief system. Um, and if that were true, then what do they teach first? Humanistic values? Or their religious values first to do your own? Well, in, in societies where it's largely secular, um, I mean, they're, they're presenting a secular education system. Look, when you do values education in elementary schools, all those values are humanistic values. Right. Self-respect, respect for others. Yeah, they're not based on supernatural revelation or divine authority or punishment. They're, and the rationale that's given for them is a secular rationale based on what works well for society, what makes you feel better, and what uh, contributes to your own self-development. I mean, if, if your self-development is based on the suppression of other people, then it's on a weak foundation, and it's not going to be the healthiest kind of self-development. So that's, that's part of the you know, the enlightened self-interest claim. In fact, it is the basis of how society... That's the irony when you read um, consequentialist ethics like utilitarianism. Uh, John Stuart Mill's uh, the, sort of the preeminent foundation of that, although his teacher, Jeremy Bentham, started the idea. But their claim is not that this is the best way to run society. It's based on thinking about the consequences for other people. They say, this is how society runs anyways. <laughs> people are always making choices based on what's best for them and what's best for other people. And the people who we aspire to, the ones who we hold up as models of ethical behavior, are the ones who are thinking about everybody and not only about themselves or only about their family. I mean, they've even had um, discussions on moral reasoning. I don't know if you're familiar with Lawrence Kohlberg and Carol Gilligan, his student, who revised him, because Kohlberg 
said that uh, the highest level of moral reasoning is abstract rational discussions. And his student, Carol Gilligan, pointed out that that's certainly the case when you survey men. But if you survey women, they tend to prize uh, relationships and the impact of this decision on other people uh, sometimes more than the abstract rational principle. Um, so it's not always clear what the best system of moral reasoning is, but the whole idea of moral reasoning is based on thinking about it, not just doing what you're told. Now, you have to choose where to put this argument out there. Traditionally, Jewish good deeds are called mitzvot or mitzvahs, doing a good deed. But it also means commandment. And you're supposed to fulfill the commandments, not because they help people necessarily, but because God told you to. So giving to charity, tzedakah, is just as high on the list as putting on your, your prayer shawl, praying three times a day if you're a man, uh, keeping the kosher law. Those all count as commandments, too. In essence, and this is where you have to be careful, and we may not put this on the podcast, but we'll see. If you're just following commandments, it sounds like you're just following orders. And if I make something good or wrong is whether or not it was ordered or not, I'm just going to follow whatever I'm told because who am I to question? Well, we've seen where that can lead. Just following orders can dehumanize other people because I have to follow the orders. What am I supposed to do? Well, this is a dilemma when we look back at Jewish ethics because uh, while there's a lot of wonderful statements about loving your neighbors yourself and doing the things for people and uh, communal self-support and not oppressing others, at the same time, there is this ethos of you do what you're told. You do what you're commanded to do. You are not free to make your own choices by kosher laws or by ritual behavior or by any of these other areas. So that leads to other problems that we might have with that system. I think that in Christianity, that same you know, belief system ended up getting challenged by Martin Luther mm-hmm. and saying, well, you shouldn't just be following these orders that, you know, of how to be a, a good Christian. You should read the Bible yourself. And right. It. And, and challenging it that way. And I think maybe the reason that we can look at even Orthodox uh, Jewish law and, and say it's a little crazy, but maybe not, you know, necessarily evil or, or bad or, you know, self-serving um, like the Catholic Church is that, you know, a lot of the things are innocuous. I mean, they may be a little bizarre, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, they're not harmful in the sense of... Well, the Catholic Church does good works, too. I mean, right. they have a lot of valuable policy perspectives well, and things a that, lot we that came out of the, the Reformation that they needed to change well. <laughs> Sure. Sure. Well, so this is our this is our challenge when we're faced with a religious interrogator who is challenging our ability to do good things. It's the balance of well, look at your look at your own experience. Religion is a, isn't a guarantee of ethics. Um, our understanding of ethics is that ethics means making hard choices. Uh, an absolute reward and punishment system doesn't necessarily lead to uh, the best uh, ethical behavior. And simply doing what you're told, following your duty, your obligations, um, also has some challenges to it as well. So. It, there is an important point here. The third question, if rules are not absolute, who decides the exceptions? You know, we say stealing is not a good thing for a lot of reasons. But could you imagine a circumstance in which the absolute right of property 
is 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 to feed your family. Is down to yeah, like no, no, I'm thinking exactly like Lame Miserable. Like your family's starving to death. Yeah. Uh, even if you have to face the consequence of stealing, is it wrong to steal given the imminent death of someone? All right. So now you understand this. This competing, that's what ethics is, it's competing values. It's not easy follow orders values. It's competing values of multiple goods and multiple bads, and you have to find the right balance. And who decides the exceptions? The challenge is we do, collectively and individually. Uh, and that's where it gets challenging in terms of imposing your ethics on other people. If you steal and you give it to your church, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, actually, but this is interesting because there have been, um, there was some Catholic charity that like wouldn't accept food that was collected at a Planned Parenthood or something like that, where, uh, because they, they felt like it was illegitimate means. But this has happened as well. Um, there was, uh, in Argentina, <laughs> there was a sizable community of Jewish prostitutes and pimps believe it or not. Uh, it was what was called white slavery at the time. Um, so much so they created their own sort of synagogue. And they wanted a spot at the, uh, at the Jewish cemetery. Uh, but the Jewish cemetery was like, we can't, <laughs> can't have you people here. Uh, but they were still Jewish. And so what do you do with them? So there's actually uh, a, a separate section of the cemetery. <laughs> right, that's right. Okay. So the last philosophical question, then we have the Jewish questions, which we haven't even touched on yet. Uh, moral authority. Why should I be concerned about the welfare of others? And the flip side of that, why should the individual be the absolute master of his or her life? And what do you mean by the separation of religion and government? This is more uh, you know, politics and how we impact the world around us. And then I put at the bottom some of the harder questions. Um, do you or do you not believe in God? <laughs> I want an answer. Interrogation. Yeah. I want an answer. Is it possible to be spiritual? Uh, can't God mean anything you want it to be? Then why, why cut the word God if you can just redefine it to whatever you want? How can you have ethics without God, we talked about? How can we believe in people after all the terrible things that people do? You know, we're humanists, but human beings are... You know, what if we are, Can you be a misanthropic human, humanist? Can you be critical of people and still call yourself a humanist? And are we a religion or not? Well, that's an interesting question, because on one hand... We are not a supernatural religion, as many other religions would be. If people ask, if you ask people on the street, nine out of ten will say religions about God or supernaturalism. Maybe ninety-nine out of hundred. On the other hand, if you look at the third dictionary definition of religion, a community of shared beliefs and values with a common calendar and inspirational experiences, shared philosophy of life, well, we fit that definition. Or as another person put it, we we meet the needs that religion meets. So if there are basic human needs that religion answers, we answer those, but with different answers. So it is a, you can call it a secular religion or a human-focused religion in that we fit that space, most of that space. Well, is that what separates, like, the Organization for Humanists versus Humanist Judaism? Well, that's right. The American Humanist Association actually redefined itself recently to be an educational nonprofit and not a religious nonprofit. Oh, because that's what they were? They were originally a religious nonprofit. Under the ethical culture perspective in the 1950s, there was a court case that said ethical culture, because it fits the space of religion, even if it's not theistic, it should get religious tax exemption and so on. And the AHA was basically a similar organization, um, but they recently... There are enough people in the group that are anti-religious enough that they they uh, re 
reincorporated themselves, so to speak, as an educational nonprofit. From pressure within, not pressure without. No, there was no no one outside was making you do that. That was a, a choice they, that they made. Um, so, uh, you know, do we fit a religious niche? I, I think we do. I think we should be on the spectrum of religion. Um, you know, just like you, you know, a spectrum of colors doesn't end before white. <laughs> Right? White is a color, too, even if it's the absence of all color. Um, and so we are a perspective on religious questions, even if we are on one end of that spectrum, as opposed to people on the other. Arrest is a note also. Arrest is a note also. Very good. I saw a study recently that said people with religion live longer, and when they were breaking down that survey, it wasn't, you know, they had believers that were unaffiliated with anything. It was one category. Another category was people who did not believe in the existence of God, but were religious. So right. they did, and they showed that. It was the community and connection as much as anything. It was the community connection, not only that, but the, the ones who were religious but non-believers had the highest <laughs> life expectancy wow. benefit. And if you were right? Yeah, <laughs> from from being, you know, excellent. Well, it's said line, thank God I'm an atheist. <laughs> I think we could put that in our membership. That's so, true. Yeah. Longevity. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> You know, I don't know if this goes back to the ethics, but you know how when you're trying to make your argument, of course, you only use the examples that conveniently fit what you're trying to say, even though you know very well that there are many examples that would go against what you're saying. And I think, you know, we're trying to, I don't know, I'm, it was some colleague of mine who we were, he was saying that you cannot be good, your society will not be good without these religious, um, mm -hmm. really to me, threat. Be good or you will go right. to hell is like this mm -hmm. looming threat. And um, he said that the example is, is obviously Soviet, you know, like mm -hmm. once you get rid of religion, look, look what happens. And that was like to him the ultimate proof mm -hmm. that without it, then, you know, every. But I think so in all of these things, you know, you enter into these debates, but that's so that's one example. So the crazy thing. Which isn't even wrong. Well, right. I mean, they, they did have a faith. It was a faith in scientific socialism, but it also was an example of the power of personality. I mean, the, the excesses of the Soviet Union under Stalin were horrific, uh, but it was authoritarianism. It was a political system. It wasn't the theology that made it happen. And the other point that you can make is it's not as if the Russian people on the street were creating these problems. It's not like it was a massive social anarchy. They were still following rules. They were still, you know, caring for their neighbors and whatever else. It was the government and the, and the system that was doing it. And that's very different. You see, the claim is that you, you produce mass atheism or mass non-theism, and then everything's going, you know, everything is going to fall apart. Um, it's just going to be violence and rape all over the place. But that wasn't the case even in those systems, that the ordinary people weren't the problem. It was the people in charge that were the problem. It's like the Iranian people aren't really the problem as much as their government Right. And their attitude that you might find, like people when I was teaching, it was lots of kids who, with their family, had just come from, you know, so they kind of started off and their parents lived their adult lives under Soviet rule, wherever uh -huh. it was. And so we had this ongoing problem where the teachers would stereotype the kids as um, those kids cheat, those kids steal, those right. kids have no respect for authority. And I'm like, well, so their parents 
in personal relationships community, it's not that they're behaving that way, but they have come with an attitude that the uh, people ruling over you are illegitimate, mm -hmm. corrupt, and there's a little bit of a cynicism. Well, why do you think they had to do it themselves? Like, if the black market is the only way that you get what you need, you are engaged in it. Doesn't mean that you don't. I mean, that's the system that is created. So, right, right. It, you know. When I lived in Japan, I learned that their business philosophy was so different than the American business philosophy that we would look at it and be like, this is totally unfair. Mm -hmm. But their philosophy really is to do whatever it takes that means stealing another company's technology or whatever it is. It, it's okay, and they don't feel any guilt for the way they do so. So much of it, it's like you said, it's the society and the right. environmental. And there are a number of systems that can work. Okay, so looking at the Jewish questions, <clears throat> we, only, we only have about 15 minutes, so we don't have time to go through everything, but you can see. Next one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or, well, what I really wanted to do was to highlight the fact that um, our Monday night class is turning to talking about philosophy. Um, and so we'll be covering each of these issues will be a whole hour-long session on social ethics, the Jewish people, Judaism, as well as the philosophic questions on truth and reality that we touched on earlier. Uh, so don't feel like we have to cover it all in an hour and ten minutes or else it's over. Uh, we'll certainly have a chance to go through it in more depth over the course of the next several months. And in fact, I'm going to to Phoenix this coming weekend uh, to teach a weekend seminar on basic ideas where what we do is we go through these questions and how would we answer these and um, what does it say about what we believe. Is there a congregation? Yes, there's a group in Phoenix. And, um, this is actually in Scottsdale, where the seminar is, but uh, yes, there's a group. So if you know people in Phoenix, you can point them in that direction. Um, and I'll be doing, uh, my next seminar, I think, will be in uh, Oak Park in December, Detroit in November, Oak Park in December, and then <clears throat> I'm hoping to do three next winter as well, one in Sarasota in February, in January, one in Boston in February, and one in New York in March. Um, so we'll be traveling around and taking the show on the road. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the most the hardest question is on the Jewish side of things. Isn't all Judaism humanistic? Well, it begs the question, what do you mean by humanistic? <laughs> do you mean humane, humanitarian? There are certainly human, humanitarian impulses in a variety of Jewish articulations, um, but that doesn't mean that all of Judaism is focused on human beings. Read a prayer book sometime and see how much people are being talked about. Even when you bless bread, you're not blessing the bread. You're blessing God who makes the bread. So the focus is very much above and beyond, not as much on this world. Um, why be Jewish at all, not just American or human? Well, what do you think? <laughs> okay, fine, that's stubborn. Um, well, the, the best way to articulate that I found was uh, Yehuda Bauer at one of our colloquia said that um, there's something unique and beautiful about Jewish culture. Um, and it's very small. It might well be a piccolo in a huge orchestra. But if we don't play the piccolo, there will be no piccolo. And the piccolo is beautiful in its own way, and it contributes something unique to the orchestra that no other instrument can contribute. And that's Jewish culture. It's a unique expression of the human experience, and it's our people's expression. And we can be as good and as creative with a piccolo as we want to be. But if we don't play the piccolo, there won't be a piccolo. 
and it's okay to have your part of the orchestra. Um, so one of the reasons some people, many people of Jewish background wind up in these non-Jewish humanist organizations is because they don't, they don't see, they may not have a positive connection to cultural identity, which is up to them, uh, but they also don't see any way that they can have their humanism and their Judaism too. If they've been trained, it's only religion, it's only religious, it's this way or the highway, they'll choose the highway. And uh, our challenge sometimes is not only appealing to the religious Jew, who is looking at us saying, how can you do this and still be Jewish? But we're appealing to the secular person who's saying, why bother being Jewish if you're already secular? And our approach is this cultural identity gives us a sense, a sense of roots and value uh, that other peoples have too. Would you really go to Native Americans and say, you can't celebrate your culture? Would you really go to Latinos and say, you need to stop celebrating your culture? Of course not. Well, why do it to Jews? Why do we? Have, why are why are we less valid in celebrating our culture than anyone else? How can you make up a new kind of Judaism? Who are you to do all these things? So many generations of Jews have said the Shema, kept kosher, blah blah blah. Aren't you betraying your ancestors? Talk, talk about guilt. That's the, uh, the guilt question. Aren't the Torah and tradition responsible for the survival of the Jewish people? In other words. You're the end. <laughs> if you go this way, it's over. Your bar bar mitzvah wasn't a real bar bar mitzvah. You're destroying the Jewish future. Well, you can always turn back on that person and say, you're destroying the Jewish future <laughs> by kicking me out. <laughs> you, are, you are restricting the bounds to a ridiculous limit. So looking over those and any of the other questions uh, earlier on the sheet, um, which particular issues uh, would you like to talk about for a bit? As an era of intermarriage of many generations, yes. come to the colloquium. Um, right. <laughs> sign up for the colloquium. Right, sign up for the colloquium. <laughs> um, I, I would say that the most important part of Judaism for me is that it gives me a dimension that you know I wouldn't otherwise have and I feel the strongest connection you know in terms of tradition to Judaism because of how I was raised um, and you know going you know going to other families homes and they might be conservative or reform or even orthodox there's there's enough common ground there's enough shared experience that there, there's a bond, you know. There, there's, you know, either family ties or friendship ties that, you know, that we share something beyond just, you know, our own personal connections, but, but a legacy and that, that shared experience brings more meaning into my own life. One way to think about it might be like if you're on a, a large university campus, 40,000, 50,000 undergrads. It's very tough to relate to that as a whole mass. Mm -hmm. It's okay to join a club. <laughs> it's okay to be in a fraternity or find another place of shared interests and common experience where you, you sort of break down the science to a manageable science where you can socialize and relate to people by things you have in common. And it doesn't mean you've betrayed your allegiance to the larger university. In fact, you found your subset that's you. Um, and so for people who would say that we are you know, betraying our universal human allegiance by this parochial, small, uh, ethnocentric identity, well, there's two answers. Uh, there's a lot of answers to that. One is you don't have to be uh, a chauvinist to have self-esteem. That is, 
I'm allowed to be proud of being Jewish without saying I'm the best. You, in fact, you want your kids to be able to say I'm good without saying I'm the best. You want them to have a sense of self-esteem without being egotist. And it's the same with our ethnic identity. We are we love the fact that we're Jewish, but it doesn't mean that it's better than other ethnicities. Uh, they are distinct in their own way. And the last point, which Ken brings up, is it's okay to be happy. Now, this this brings positive things to my life. You're telling me I can't I can't be happy. I can't do things that make me feel good, which are not harming anybody else, and in fact can be doing something wonderful. No, nothing wrong with that. Again, it's a very simplistic answer. What's wrong with that? You know, I, I, having been raised in this, I've always found it odd that people think it's odd, because this is what I'm used to. <laughs> and, you know, what's so crazy about a group of people that have a similar set of beliefs and a similar cultural identity getting together to celebrate holidays and teach their kids? And what's crazy about that? You know, on a, on a rational level, and just a simplistic level, nothing wrong with that at all. And it's not like Judaism hasn't changed it all over the years. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The fact that we're making, that said, who are you to make changes? Well, everyone's made changes. You know, nothing is always the way it was. And I use the example of the uh, picking up people on chairs at weddings. You know, that wasn't, that wasn't historic practice for everyone. It's since Fiddler on the Roof has taken up. And how old is Hasidim? Yeah, and Hasidism or ultra-Orthodox Judaism is... It changed, you know, it has uh, changed in its own way internally, but also is only a few hundred years old. You know, it's not like Jews in the 1200s were dressed the way they are now in the ultra-Orthodox communities. They imagined that they were because whatever my parents did is what must have been done always, but that's not the case uh, more broadly. And you know what? I look at you destroying the Jewish future as maybe you're saving the Jewish future more so right. than destroying it. I love what Yaakov Malkin said once at another colloquium. He said, Orthodox Judaism over the last 250 years has been an abject failure in maintaining its Jewish identity. 250 years ago, what percent of Jews in the world were Orthodox by that definition? All of them. Spinoza, minus Spinoza, right? <laughs> Everybody, just about. Today, what percent of the world's Jews are Orthodox? 15%. 20% at the most. How would you classify European Jews? It seems so tiny. <laughs> it is tiny. Europe, well, okay, in European Jews, the synagogues are traditional and Orthodox. But the la but the Jews out there on the street are not. They're not living Orthodox lifestyles. I mean, there isn't denominations of Judaism in Europe. You're either Jewish yeah, or you're not. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are reformed synagogues. They call it progressive in uh, England. Uh, so there are, and in Germany as well, uh, there, there are some varieties. Uh, but it, you're right, it's not quite as easy there for the denominations. Uh, but nevertheless, the, if you talk, the population who calls themselves Jewish, the vast majority are not Orthodox, no matter how you slice it. So saying that Orthodoxy is the future, Orthodoxy is the past. If you look at a long enough time frame, um, and the more important thing is if there's only one way to be Jewish, there will be very few Jews. If there are lots of ways to be Jewish, there'll be more ways to be Jewish. There'll be more Jews who are involved. And slicing it off at a certain point and saying, well, if you don't believe this, you're gone. If you don't follow this ritual practice, you're gone. Well, that's, that's a, limited, uh, a limited success strategy. Now, people will challenge us and say, well, you cut off things too. So, for example, why should believing in Jesus be a barrier to being Jewish? And you can't just say, well, it is. 
So our answer to that one generally is two ways to think about it. One is there are other Jewish groups that believe in a Messiah that hasn't come back. They're called the Babachers, or at least a substantial set of the Lubavitch movement believes that their previous Rebbe, Nathan Mendel Schneerson, was in fact the Messiah, and they're waiting for him to come back. So if they can be Jewish, then uh, the other ones can be Jewish too. Second point is, you can make a distinction between being Jewish and practicing a form of Judaism uh, as an active Jewish culture. If you're celebrating only Christian holidays, but you call yourself Jewish by background, then you're Jewish, but maybe you're not practicing a uh, something that's organized around Jewish culture. And the third way to think about it is whether they identify with the future of the Jewish people. That is, if you believe in a future of a vibrant, distinct, different Jewish cultural and ethnic identity, even as it's mixed with other peoples, uh, that's in the mainstream of Jewish thought and culture. If you believe in a, a vanishing of the Jews into a broader Christian world, which is the agenda of some of these so-called Jews for Jesus organizations, then that's not part of the Jewish future. And so uh, we feel comfortable not referring someone to you as a uh, primarily Jewish organization. But after all, it's sort of like us with a foot in the religion world and a foot out of the religion world. They, they have a foot in the Jewish world and a foot out too. Um, and it just depends on where their weight is uh, for the particular uh, setting. Wouldn't you say a lot of people come to us with maybe kind of a foot still in someplace else and having questions and because of those sure. questions feel very comfortable coming here and as time goes on, they form right. different right. Well, I, I, I like to think that what I do is descriptive and not prescriptive. That is, I'm not telling you what you have to believe. I mean, I can certainly try to convince you, but in the end, you're making your own choice. But I like to think that what I'm doing is descriptive. That is, I'm, I'm articulating what people already believe. And a lot of people who come to us say, well, I felt this way for a long time, and finally someone sort of put it together. And that's ideally what we do, is we're much more uh, celebrating what we already believe than uh, forcing you to change your mind. Now you may, you know, and that's fine. people don't want to out loud because in the broader society, especially as we're watching these uh, debates, right. debates, people who do not believe are really so vilified, or they won't admit it right. and, and to show your credibility as a good person. You have to say how religious you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that is so dominant, at least in the media. I don't really think it's dominant among individual people. Right. But actually, the end of March is going to be a march in Washington. Um, it's called the Reason Rally, uh, where they're trying to get all these different organizations to come and send people to do a, a march of non-theists on Washington to say we're here and we're, we're real. Um, they're having a lobbying day beforehand and all kinds of other activities. Uh, but that's, that's, again, to try to change that message. Um, it reminds me of the 2008 campaign. You may remember <clears throat> there was a, um, a case where uh, Colin Powell went, I think, on Meet the Press, and they were saying, you know, this is a, what if Barack Obama is Muslim or not? And his response was, so what if he is? <laughs> you know, who cares? I know Muslims have served in the army and they were, you know. But later in that campaign, there was a North Carolina Senate uh, contest between Elizabeth Dole and Kay Hagan, I think her name was. And um, Dole's campaign put out this commercial where it basically said, Kay Hagan took money from atheists and, oh. and uh, you know, is, is complicit with their secular humanist agenda. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so then Kay Hagan, well, Kay Hagan comes back with a commercial saying, I am a Christian, I believe in God, I teach Sunday school, I, this is a lot of... 
And what we needed was the Colin Powell response for the. So what if she did? Like, what's, you know, why, but that that was not the winning strategy for Kay Hagen in North Carolina. Um, so it, it really depends on where. You're, look, if you're in New York City and you come out as an atheist, it is not a big deal. <laughs> Um, if you're in Berkeley, California, I mean, if anything, you get it from the spiritualists who are saying, why don't you believe in many gods? <laughs> or, you know, the, the, the supernatural powers. Why are you, why are you, why are you dissing those? Um, if you're in Tennessee. But if you're in, yes, in, in other places, in Texas, uh, there, there, are, there are some issues. Uh, in fact, I, I heard a case, I think I just saw this in the news uh, yesterday or uh, the day before. There's a judge in Texas now who is refusing to marry heterosexual couples <laughs> until gay couples can marry there, um, which is sort of the reverse of what you get in some uh, areas in New York, for example, where city clerks have said they won't issue gay marriage licenses because they don't believe. So now someone's going the other direction, uh, and we'll see what kind of pressure that brings to bear. In Texas. I think she just doesn't want to do weddings, and so she, this is her way out of it. <laughs> in terms of defining who is a Jew, is that is that the SHJ's policy that... Well, we had, there was another organization I didn't put up there because it's somewhat dormant called the International Federation of Secular Humanistic Jews, which is reoriented to the International Federation of Sec for Secular Humanistic Judaism. Anyways, <laughs> IFSHJ is the name. And in 1988, they came out with a statement on who was a Jew. And it basically, and it's also printed in the appendix of the anthology uh, and in the Basic Ideas book as well. It basically says, a Jew is someone who is of Jewish descent, we didn't clarify mother, father, generations, or someone who identifies with the history, culture, and future of the Jewish people. Uh, so that's where that future idea comes in, in that statement. And, uh, and the society fully endorsed, endorsed that statement of the International Federation um, because it's an open and welcoming one. And, people right. who, and it does raise the question, if you choose not to identify, right. can you leave? And uh, you know, from an Orthodox definition, maybe not. If your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish, no matter what you believe or eat or do. Um, and our perspective is, if it's a cultural identity, you can ditch your culture, and uh, you know, it'll be part of who you are, even on the sub, you know, subconscious psychological makeup. But if we want to be open to get in, then we should be open to get out too. So that, that's where I'm, I'm a little confused in the sense of like. Buddhist Jews, you know, Buddhist right. Jews and that, that type of thing, where can you, can you have your cake and eat it too? Can you have a, uh, a Buddhist outlook and at the same time self-identify as being Jewish and, and be recognized? I mean, it seems like our organization has always been of a self-actualizing type where it's if you believe it, then that's what you believe, and there's nothing that we can say that's going to negate that. It's mm -hmm. just your own personal, you know, viewpoint of the world. So, you know. well, I mean, we can certainly ask questions. Right? <laughs> you know, why do you believe this? Does this fit? How does this fit with your belief? Um, but uh, look, if we can combine a humanistic approach to life with Judaism, and not just like tape it together like uh, like the island of Dr. Moreau and sort of, you know, graph two things that don't work, uh, but really have our humanism organically come out of our understanding of the Jewish experience, our response to Jewish sources, and so on. Um, theoretically, you do the same with Buddhism. Uh, and again, Buddhism is tricky because Buddhism as articulated in Asia originally is very different from the Buddhism that has been filtered through commercialism and American translations. Uh, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Stephen Batchelor called Buddhism with I think it's Buddhism Without Beliefs. It's the name of it. 
Um, and it's basically Buddhism for atheists, and it's wonderful. It's about Buddhism as a meditative system, Buddhism as a personal practice, as an approach to ethics. There's all kinds of values one can draw from Buddhism, and Bachelor admits that this is not the Buddhism you see in Tibet with reincarnation and monks and gender subordination and all kinds of other values that would not play well in the American setting. Um, so in Buddhism, Buddhism has evolved, evolved too in its own ways, and um, so you can draw on those sources too. Um, look, I'd like to think that uh, there are many secular Jews who are progressive in their politics, and they find a way to marry together their secular Jewish identity with their progressive politics. But you don't have to do that to be a secular, cultural, humanistic Jew. Uh, they've made that connection, and frankly, their progressive politics would be their politics whether or not they were drawing on Jewish sources to do it. In many ways, they're using it as a lens to look back on their Jewish connections, but it's not necessarily the case that, if that were the case, then ultra-Orthodox Jews would be progressive politically, too, because they're studying the, source, the same sources, and they would come to the same conclusions. Well, it's a combination of what you learn from outside and what you know from inside. Uh, that's everyone's Judaism. So the irony is it's not that there's one or two or three or five Judaisms. There's 12 million Judaisms that have their each, uh, each have a different flavor of what uh, they got from Jewish sources and what they got from the outside world. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.